My vision and my mission is to try and say, as an oncologist, I want to give the best therapy for that patient. I want to give them the best chance, right, of either curing their cancer or surviving and living longer with their cancer. But I need your help to help me get through, either prevent this from happening, or if it does happen, how can I get through this and maintain their cardiovascular health or make it even better? Welcome to Target Cancer Podcast. My name is Dr. Sanjay Janeja. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, also known as the Onc Doc on social media. And today I'm super excited to really, I should be able to say friend first. We've met once, but we had a very good conversation over two and a half hours, and I think it was Italian food. Uh, this is Dr. Susan Dent, Duke's own. And really, I can't even say she's in cardio-oncology. She basically is a, was the trailblazer and pioneer in cardio-oncology before that was even a thing or a term. So that's why this is a super humbling conversation to have with Dr. Dent. Dr. Dent, thank you for being here. I know you're like the founder and starter of the global now cardio-oncology kind of summit where y'all discuss things. And to be honest, a lot of community oncologists don't even think of it that much as they should, and which is why we're having you to make that conversation change. What made you passionate about it? Well, first of all, thank you for um, welcoming me to this podcast. I'm so excited to share, you know, the work because I think this is such an important area. What really drew me to this area back now over a decade ago was when, as a breast cancer sort of treater, when new therapy was introduced into our clinic called trastuzumab. Now, this is a, you know, as we know, it's a monoclonal antibody for women who overexpress this protein called HER2. When we saw the exciting data about the benefit of this therapy and for women, not only with advanced cancer, but early stage breast cancer, we started to use it in the clinic. But quickly, we began to see that this had an impact on the heart. And in fact, what we saw, right, was we saw a drop in something called the electroventricular ejection fraction, which is how well your heart squeezes. And to be honest with you, as an oncologist, I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know what that meant. Many of my but colleagues it's terrifying, were that's for sure. it's terrifying. Many of my colleagues were stopping treatment, which was potentially curative. And importantly, when I sent those women to my cardiology colleagues, they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't even know how to say the name. They didn't know what trastuzumab was. They didn't know the importance of it. So I quickly identified that there was an issue here. How, as an oncologist, could I provide this therapy that really was making a difference in the women? you know, on their lives and cure rates without causing, you know, a negative impact on their cardiovascular health. And so that made me think there's got to be something we can do. This is an unmet clinical need. And that's huge because, and you said it, but just so people understand, HER2 is a very aggressive, like protein driver kind of thing for a tumor. That was something you would kind of pray that you did not have when you had the diagnosis originally, right? Before we had right. agents that says, aha, we can finally right. target it. Right. It was terrifying. And now right. it was almost, you, you, it's crazy to think in the world of cancer, you hope that it's HER2 positive versus triple negative where you don't have anything because now you have a means to attack it. Well, if you only have one drug that literally flipped the fact that you, you know, that it's something to really like just pray that you don't have to all of a sudden wanting it versus, versus not and having nothing, to have to not be able to use that is still a humongous detriment. And then that's what inspired you to say, hang on, like, you know, is there a way we can use this because it's the only thing we have and now we have more and how? And then so how did you determine, like, you were, you know, you were one of the people that says, hey, we can and this is when we should stop it and, and we're talking about heart failure and people are young. What, did you just, what was the, what was the plan? <laughs> so there really was no plan at the beginning. And, and, and ironically, you know, what I did was I, I found three cardiologists and we literally met for coffee. 
we sat down at the coffee shop in the hospital I worked worked in in Canada, in Ottawa, Canada, and I just said to them, you know, this is a problem. We need to determine, we need to figure out how we can treat these women. And so they jumped on board. They were committed to working with me. We went out and got some sponsorship on my own, and we just said, you know, we're going to do it. We're going to set up a clinic, and we're going to just tell people, send them to this clinic if you have any concerns about a woman's heart health and giving this drug called trastuzumab. And that's how we started, really small. But, you know, I, I said this to the uh, oncologists and they were all on board and this group of cardiologists were all on board. And before I knew it, we set up a cardio-oncology clinic. And that was more than 10 years ago, before people even knew or had ever heard of that word, we set up the right. clinic. So it's all started, and for those that don't know, it is called Herceptin. So we're going to get to, in a minute, you know, how likely it is. I hope no one's hearing this and be like, oh my gosh, we have heart failure. The purpose of this talk is to say, hey, today, in today's world, we can still use it. And we even, as we'll talk about, give it again, even if it occurs, like the, the guidelines, because of the reasons we talked about, still says re-challenge, you know, and then after it happens again, you kind of you yeah, pair away. But before that... That was Herceptin then. Uh, what are some of the more common medications that now fit or constitute into this umbrella of cardio-oncology, or is it mostly still trastuzumab? First of all, I just want to say, you know, we've moved beyond trastuzumab, or as you said, right. Herceptin. Now there are all sorts of other HER2-targeted therapies. There's a drug called pertuzumab, which we use both in early and advanced breast cancer. There's other, you know, new exciting drugs, ones called TDXD or NHER2. There's another one called TDM1 or Catsila. All of these drugs are being used in the treatment of breast cancer. And so fortunately, because we've learned along the way about how to manage these women, for the most part, we are managing these women and not putting them into heart failure, right, with the use of these drugs. So that's part, the first question you asked me, but I, one, one thing I really want to stress here is when I started working in this space of cardio-oncology, everyone said to me, oh, it's just about breast cancer. It is not just about breast cancer, right? We Tell know now that there are all sorts of cancer drugs that we use in a wide variety of cancers that can affect cardiovascular health. So that really annoyed me when at first, when people start doing that, but I think now people do realize that, gee, We've got these great therapies out there. We're making huge advancements in cancer treatment, but there's a cost to that. And we have to be aware of that and we have to learn how to deal with that. That's huge. And what are some of the, what are the three others that are not breast cancer related? I do have to say that anyone listening, now we use one of those HER2 targeted drugs and HER2 in lung cancer. If you have stage four lung cancer and you have uh, HER2 expression, you know, you have the other ones, EGFR, ROS1, ALK, and all those, all of a sudden we've added just that within the month of August, another one because you can qualify for that breast cancer drug, but really in lung. And though it's about two to 3% of adenocarcinomas, it has like, you know, upwards of 60, 80% efficacy. So everyone needs to go back if you know someone or have lung cancer and make sure that you're tested for that because these are the targeted therapies we're talking about, which is right. not that generalized cytotoxic chemo. Right. I think the other thing to highlight is if you think about it, all of the new cancer drugs that have been approved are targeted therapies. We're really mm -hmm. moving away from you know, chemotherapy where it attacks all the cells and you hope that you get the cancer cells, but you impact the normal healthy cells. So the advancements in cancer therapy are largely based on these new targeted therapies, right? And that's why, I mean, I, I think any, you know, some people are listening, wait, so are you telling me if it's targeted therapy, 
that it's not necessarily poisoning the heart, but that there's a HER2 target on heart cells. And is this, you know, and I think that person is thinking, ah, so this is why you have side effects because the thing you're targeting, remember, that cancer cell has the properties and building blocks of a regular cell. Those are the tools they have. They just use them in a very not merciful way, but they're gonna be similar. They don't just come up with, I mean, to some degree they may, but they don't come up with a new tool or protein that just didn't exist because they're not that smart. They, they're dependent on the coding they had when they used to listen. And so that's kind of where that kind of evolved from, right? Very true. So you asked me, what are the other examples? I mean, you mentioned already tyrosine kinase inhibitors, which are used in a variety of, of, of tumors, can cause hypertension. And so we already know that many of our patients now come to us with pre-existing hypertension. So then you may be put into a situation where you want to give that person this drug for their cancer, whether it be small cell lung cancer or anything else, other kinds of cancer, but you may you know, make their underlying hypertension worse. So much so that it's hard to actually give that drug, right? My renal cell cancer patients, those are the ones that, yeah. My, my kidney cancers, those TKIs, for some reason, just really, I don't know if it's also because they had kidney issues, but it just becomes so stubborn and difficult to treat down, as well as some of, you know, the clangios and hepatocellulars. These are, they're just known, those inibs, if somebody's listening, like itinib, you know, those are the ones that you kind of like watch out for the blood pressure. It's not false. It's just because it's doing it, which sometimes means it's actually maybe more efficacious, but, but nonetheless can be pretty rigid. Yeah, so there's those those nib drugs that you alluded to, and then of course we have to talk about immune checkpoint inhibitors and this whole idea of the immunotherapy and the immune, you know, drugs that can attack uh, cancers, and they have spread across all cancer types, as you know. Probably breast cancer has been the one of the last cancers for these drugs to be approved, but they can also affect the cardiovascular system, and although it's rare, they can cause myocarditis. And that occurs maybe in about one to two percent of individuals, but if it does occur, it's people get quite sick, and the mortality rate for those patients is about fifty percent. Oh so it's God. really scary, scary side effect. As we move forward, and all these new cancer drugs come into the clinic, that's so exciting. But we have to be very aware. It's not like ten or fifteen years ago where it was just a drop in your white count, hair loss nausea, vomiting. These are the traditional side effects that we see associated with chemotherapy, but these new target therapies have very unique side effects that we have to think about. It's and very enigmatic. Yeah, the important thing is it's not necessarily a barrier to having access to these drugs. We just know how to manage side effects. It's recognizing it too, because they're enigmatic because again, it can be subtle. It, everyone's used to decades of cytotoxic, you know, the poison chemotherapy that drops accounts in the usual. And, and we're learning too. I mean, we learn as, as things evolve, but, but certainly like in the myocarditis example, you know, when I talk, you know, or give lectures on checkpoint inhibitors, I'm always like, the recognition is the key. Like we know the expert opinion across the board is the fatalities are as high as they are because it's a late diagnosis, because you may want to treat something the traditional way. If somebody has a neuropathy, you send them to a, like a, an eyeball thing, you send them to an ophthalmologist and they do all this, that, and the other, and it keeps getting worse. Or, you know, colitis, you just keep treating like it's just regular diarrhea. The reason it's so important is because the steroids, high-dose steroids, basically are lymphoreductive. They, they reduce the lymphocytes that have been, you know, basically able to go attack the cancer cells, usually very effectively, and mm -hmm. then start doing it somewhere else. And you have to recognize it soon enough because there's a good chance you can control it if, if you think about it. Like in myocarditis, for example, and I had another gentleman 
who had pericarditis, and then he had a pleural fusion, and it was all from checkpoint inhibitor. But fortunately, I lecture on checkpoint inhibitor, so I was like, this is like what, you know, this is probably what this is. We reversed it. Things got better, because the second time it recurred is when we, when we kind of uh, had to stop the therapy, because it was working. So myocarditis, for example, like what would be the symptoms of that? You know, the problem with myocarditis is that it can be very, very um, elusive, right? Mm -hmm. So someone might come in, for instance, just with some shortness of breath or maybe some chest discomfort. It's not one of those things that where patients will come and say, oh, well, I'm coming in with chest pain. I'm on an immune checkpoint inhibitor. It must be myocarditis, right? And when so that has been the challenge of understanding that because you, you can get ECG changes or not. You can get some, you know, shortness of breath or chest pain or not. Um, you can see changes on echo, but not necessarily. And so in many instances, it is a matter of understanding that A, they're having some symptoms, B, thinking about this, C, you know, doing the standard tests such as ECG, you know, chest X-ray and maybe a cardiac MR, and then having a high index of suspicion, right? And in fact, there are, this is not my area of expertise, but there are now new guidelines that have come out that give you a checklist of all the things that you might look at to make that diagnosis. So uh, this is kind of exciting. I don't know if you've heard about this, but there was just a big meeting of all the cardiologists um, in Barcelona uh, this past weekend. And the European Society of Cardiology just put out this huge guideline on algorithms and ways to diagnose yeah, cancer, you know, therapy induced and cardiotoxicity related to cancer therapies. It's a 133 page document. And it's wow. remarkable with many figures in there. So when you're thinking about, you know, a cancer therapy, a new targeted therapy, and how to sort of not only manage that, ther that therapy that may lead to some form of cardiovascular toxicity, but how do you prevent it? So there's a huge amount of that document that speaks to, you know, we need to do a better job at not just treating these things, but we need to focus our attention as to how to prevent these things. So we know we're treating a patient with an agent that potentially has cardiovascular toxicity. What can we do to prevent it? And therefore, one of the things we can think about is risk. So who's at high risk? And how do you define high risk? So if you're receiving, you know, an anthracycline that, you know, cytotoxic agent has been around forever, how do you determine if they're at high risk of experiencing cardiotoxicity? And there's, there's a point system, there's algorithms in this document that help you define that. And so, I mean, that's so important because I was waiting for to hear, to hear more because there are, you know, we get echoes obviously before doxorubicin, say like for a high-grade lymphoma or some of these agents that we know of with the cytotoxics, but really short of that echo, you know, or a mega scan and getting that EF, you know, I'll say like, I don't know how a community oncologist would say this, much more to actually not do the therapy. And when you were talking about the preventative measures as well as the treating measures, that was kind of a big picture question that I think some may have, that we know these things have risks. You answered one of them, which is, okay, let's, my, let's really tease down the risks, profiles of people as individuals. That's the whole concept of precision therapy, like not just how precise the therapy is for your specific cancer, but even you know you as, as a subject, you get science -y, make it precise to you too and what you know and not just a number or a statistic on this is your you know your chance based on the data of a general population so that's huge but then once you start these therapies that are often very necessary what do you say to that one person that says well regardless if it is or it isn't you know you kind of it happened basically what what is the answer to that or is it like no actually it doesn't just happen these are the things we can do to treat it and is our goal to 
continue therapy is our goal to basically, even if we can't continue therapy, make the heart better. So when you think about treating, you know, individuals with potentially cardiotoxic drugs, I think, as I alluded to, there's that beginning part. So you have to, it's a good idea to assess their risk. So what is the risk of them potentially experiencing cardiotoxicity? There is now in this, you know, guideline from the European Society of Cardiology, and actually I should say it's in collaboration with the International Cardio-Oncology Society, which I'm currently president, so that I really feel privileged to be a part of that. But what it does is it, it has this scoring system. So you can score people at low, intermediate, and high risk of potentially experiencing a cardiotoxicity. And then based on that, there's recommendations about how you should follow those people. So how often you should do an echo, how often you should do an ECG, and they also have recommendations around doing biomarkers when patients are on this therapy. That's huge. So for instance, yeah. So for instance, if they're at low risk, you can do a baseline echocardiogram, a 12 lead ECG, and maybe some biomarkers or not, but those who are at high risk, you're gonna follow those people more closely and you're probably gonna do echocardiograms more often and cardiac biomarkers. And that's treatment specific. Right. Like you so can even query it. Right, so what they've done is we have these nine different categories of drugs. So you've got the anthracyclines, you've got the HER2 targeted agents, you have the TKIs and VEGF inhibitors. And so there's nine different categories of drugs and yeah, it's great. And it Wait, sort of right, what, what, I need this site right now, I'm bookmarking it. Or, or site or page. How do I find it? Where is that? It's the ESC guideline. It was just published in the European Heart Journal online, 133 pages. And not only does it give you these algorithms and how to risk stratify patients, but they have great graphics and charts and, you know, algorithms about how to risk stratify these patients. And following that, they also have guidelines in about how do you monitor these people with all the idea is to try and prevent right? Prevent them developing cardiotoxicity. Because that's what people have to realize. It's not binary, like, oh, you got cardiotoxic, you didn't. It's developmental, just like everything else in, right. in life. It's right. like, it's like, it's right. not cancer, it wasn't cancer, or stage four, it wasn't stage four. It is a series of events in, in some, you know, consecutive manner over time that you find in the, you know, in that cancer or whatever that process is, how early or how late. And yeah, like everything, toxicities for immune therapy, like, like cardiotoxicity, the earlier you find it, the earlier you can recognize it, the earlier you can treat it. So these these risk profiles, is there a calculator for that? Because now I'm thinking even patients, you know, if they're oncologists, who a lot of them in the community, it's not that they don't care or aren't serious, it's they're working very hard to have a lot of people's needs. Can a patient go and basically at least, at the very least, calculate their own score and then, you know, say, hey, I think these are the parameters just to make sure that I'm, you know, so, getting my... Yeah. I think I, at this point, would encourage the oncologist to look at this document. So it actually is a point system. And based okay. on the point system, you add up the points and it puts you into one of those categories, right? Low, intermediate, high. Use this all the time. Yeah, and so then then you can look at that. It can be done, you know, paper-based or, you know, we're trying to incorporate it into our EMR so that we don't have to do it on paper and it becomes part of the healthcare record. And then accordingly, you can look at what are the recommended cardio, cardiac, you know, surveillance strategies and what tests you should be doing. So. It is something that's really gained traction in the last two years in this world of cardio-oncology because, again, it's one thing to treat someone once they developed cardiotoxicity, but we want to try and prevent it. You said something earlier to me, and I think this is really important for people to understand. What about those individuals where something happens? What about those individuals who are on a therapy? It may be a life-saving therapy. They may have 
you know, be on curative therapy if they have early stage disease, or they may have advanced cancer and they may be on what I'll call life-sustaining therapy. And then they develop a problem, whether it's heart failure or uncontrolled hypertension or some form of arrhythmia. I think this is where, you know, you really have to have a strong relationship with your cardiologist. And this is where cardio-oncology really comes to true form because our values and my mission, you know, in speaking to people is that how can we continue that therapy? If that therapy, if that cancer therapy is working for that person, I don't want to have to tell that patient you have to stop. What I want to do is find a way that we can continue treatment for that patient. That's unbelievable because, you know, a lot of the mantras in general in the community is, you're hurting my organ, I recommend stopping it. You're right. hurting and we're like, oh, but, you know, in our organ, the cancer is very necessary. And that kind of harmony of like, hey, the risks and benefits and what can I do and what, how good it will it be for you, that's cardio-oncology. So if somebody starts at the beginning and says, what is cardio-oncology? That's what it is. It's like right. like anything in life, risks, right. benefits, can, right. can something be done for the side effects and how do we work together? That's amazing. And this document actually encourages that collaboration and that dialogue, right? You need an open dialogue between the two specialties. So let me just give you an example because I am now starting to see people come to me where their oncologist, perhaps in the community, doesn't feel comfortable treating them because they ex have experienced some form of cardiotoxicity. So I had a uh, actually a male breast cancer patient with HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer, and he came to me because his ejection fraction had dropped. It was less than 50%, and they did not feel comfortable at his cancer center treating him. So he came to me because he obviously he needed more treatment. Without treatment, his cancer was going to progress. But there, there was that sense of uncomfortableness, you know, in terms of treating him locally. So, you know, that's where, again, we've seen the published articles. We know that, you know, when these drugs were developed, for instance, HER2 targeted therapies, that the, the clinical trials were done, right, with patients with you no know, normal hearts and they were healthy. But that's not reality, is it? Right. Oh, right? that we have all these people out there who may not have a perfect heart. They may not, you know, fit in to the sort of criteria that were used in the clinical trials. Right. So the real people, the real people, we have to treat yeah. them. So we have to learn, and that's where cardio-oncology comes in, working with our colleagues, how we can treat those people. And I should say, you know, I've talked a lot about working with cardiologists. They're one, you know, one person in the team. That means working with your pharmacists, that means working with your nurses and the whole healthcare team, right? It's not just cardio, oh, yeah, cardiologists, yeah, yeah, yeah. oncologists, but it's a whole healthcare team. So my, you know, my vision and, uh, and my mission is to try and say, you know, as an oncologist, I want to give the best therapy for that patient. I want to give them the best chance, right, of either curing their cancer or surviving and living longer with their cancer. But I need your help to help me get through, either prevent this from happening, or if it does happen, how can I get through this? How can I get through this and maintain their cardiovascular health or make it even better? Yeah, and the flip side of that is, you know, as an oncologist, like not to just, I hope, like be okay and say, well, I tried, you got heart failure, like, I'm sorry, but I can say I tried everything to you know, keep you alive and do the best thing for your cancer. Like, or, you know, the empathetic oncologist say, oh, if there is a world out there that it doesn't make it so binary and I can do more. And I know that an oncologist, you know, everyone I've met like would say, oh, there is more. So it doesn't have to be binary. Like 
you know, and sometimes they say what knowledge is a burden or like, you know, now you have the burden of this knowledge. Now that we know that it's out there, you can't stop it just saying, oh, we tried, you had to drop, like, you know, I'm sorry, but we can say we tried. There's more, there's way more and it's still developing. There's way more and it's not binary, you're right, right? It's not binary. And although you can say it's a burden, you have to remember that we're working with our colleagues. We share that burden, right? It's no different yeah. than, you know, if you have a difficult person with cancer that, I mean, a difficult case and you don't know how to treat it, you share that with your colleagues, you ask for opinions, you discuss yeah. it. Really. No, I mean, ethical, conscientious burden. So like, that's why, that's why this is a podcast of burdens. Like basically I love doing all the different podcasts where I'm like, now you learn something. Now you knew something that sometimes, you know, the minds of peace where it doesn't know. And it's the burden we, we collectively carry to do the most. And it's not really a burden, really. I mean, I'm half joking, but the point is, you mind doesn't know what it doesn't know and now that it does know and the cardio oncology is out there and if you're a patient that's listening and, and you're told like well they said it i really got canceled and really there is more and so that's why that's where that kind of like proactiveness and responsibility on all of our parts is to not be able to do this and say oh wait no there is yes go do it it's there you're making it happen you have like i think the international organization of cardio that you're president of as well as there's a national one i believe and i know you started one in canada Right. And then the summit. So there's, you basically made sure there's flags everywhere in the Western world. Right. So it's, I, I agree. So, I mean, one of the things I've tried to do over the last decade is to educate. Educate yes. patients, educate providers, educate the public. And so there's a couple of ways we've done that. So you're right. So when I was in Canada, um, I started the Canadian Cardio-Oncology Network. That was to educate, you know, all of those people. And that's still ongoing. Um, also was um, started the Global Cardio-Oncology Summit, and that's been fantastic. We are actually hosting it again in Toronto in October. Um, our last in-person meeting was in Brazil, of course, with you know COVID, we were virtual. But at that meeting, we had over 500 people attend from around the world, over 20 countries. And so the interest has grown phenomenally. Now, I also have to say that, you know, we have the International Cardio-Oncology Society, and I've recently become president of that society. We just surpassed 800 members in that society from over 20 countries. Wow. So it's been phenomenal in terms of the interest in learning more about this. People are accepting that cancer is going to be around for all. We have cancer, we have better drugs, and the heart matters. It sounds like people are just like realizing that that's just the reality, and what can we do about it to make it better? I agree. And so it's education is so important, as you've already pointed out to you. And I just wanted to say one additional thing we've talked about. I've talked a little bit about risk and assessing risk and and what happens if you develop a problem when you're on treatment and we need to deal with it. But one thing we haven't talked a lot about is what about after your treatment? What about when you go into that period that we call survivorship? What happens to you then? And I think that's a bit, a bit of a void actually. And I think that we often forget about those people. We, we, we focus on, you know, doing a mammogram for instance, if you have breast cancer to make sure you know, you don't get have a recurrence. So we focus on that part, you know, trying to monitor you for cancer recurrence. But what, what about the rest of you? Right. Right. And that's one of the biggest feedbacks I get that where, where patients get hurt. They're like, I, it's like, you're done with me. It's like I had like, I got it treated and now we just monitor and surveil for the cancer. But to your point, what about all the things I got that like to treat my cancer? Is there any, any modality or algorithm for me to be monitored for the means that of which I control cancer, because I do believe in a lot of people, not me, but the patient may say, I can't because I have cancer, fortunately, but the patient will say, 
I believe that something about the treatment I had is causing a problem and all that everyone wants to focus on is the cancer. So what does that look like? And in cardio-oncology, it sounds like y'all are building that too to say, hey, we're not abandoning now that you've completed your treatment and we recognize, and again, knowledge is a burden, like to a degree, half joking, but it's true. We recognize it's there and people need to be more responsible about monitoring it how? So, um, absolutely agree. We, we recognize that, you know, as people move into survivorship, we need to get better at, again, preventative strategies. So working with not only the oncologist, but bringing in the primary care provider to try and make sure that, you know, the comorbidities that may person may have are well controlled. So if you have hypertension, that's got to be controlled. If you have diabetes, that has to be controlled because all of these things if you look at them and you combine them on top of the cancer therapy you may had, actually may make your cardiovascular health worse, right? And so what there isn't a lot of evidence to guide us right now in terms of what tests that you should do after, you know, cardiac directed tests, but it's an area that we're investigating and we're learning more about. But what is clear is, is that you don't pay attention to some of those risk factors, you know, lifestyle issues like diet and health, exercise, all of those things, that that collectively could have a negative impact, right, on your overall health. What we're learning, and, and what needs to be clear is, it's not just for the life, and hopefully the way people are living now, people do live years and years with targeted therapies, and that's only going to be more. Right. But secondly, that it can actually prime you to be either intolerant or toxic from the very therapy that is keeping you alive. And that's right. why the, the right. one big reason to focus on that hypertension. So let, let me give you an example. So there was a study done a few years ago by Lee Jones looking at the exercise capacity of women three years after they finished their therapy for early stage breast cancer. And what he determined was that the exercise capacity of a 50-year-old three years out was equivalent to a 70-year-old sedentary woman. That's not good. So when those women come to your clinic and they say, I feel tired, yeah, we, we're, getting, we're beginning to understand why they feel tired because this is the impact we have had on their cardiovascular health. Wow, that is Yeah, huge. that's really shocking. The I, other I think a lot of people feel heard right now with you saying that, <laughs> like finally, like validation. The other thing, as you alluded to, I want to say is when, what do we mean by survivors? So we talk about people with early stage cancer, they've had their treatment, they go into this sort of survivorship. But as you've already stated, people are living a long time with cancer. These targeted therapies mean that in women, for instance, with HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer, they're living five years and more. We're seeing overall survival rates more than 60 months now in the trials. Yeah which means that yes, you still have to pay attention to your blood pressure, you know, your, your diabetes, if you have it, your lipid profile. Whereas in the past, I think oncologists would say, you know, you've got metastatic cancer, like what does it matter? It doesn't matter anymore. But wouldn't that be terrible if you're surviving your cancer or living with your cancer and you have a catastrophic event from the risk factors that are not being managed appropriately? Yes. So That's we can't idea. think like that anymore. We have to right. realize that, you know, things have changed. So that just brings up an example that when I've spoken to some of my older colleagues, they have said, well, you know, I've never seen any cardiovascular consequences from the treatment I give patients. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, how can that be? It just doesn't make sense. But you don't, if you're not looking for something, 
you may not the mind see. doesn't know what it doesn't know exactly correct and you know we hear all these stories we've not looked for them in the past but i do hear these stories whereby you know someone's had treatment 10 15 years ago and then they present with heart failure and people don't always make the connection but that happens right but if you don't look for it or if you don't talk to each other if specialists don't work together they'll never come up with that connection so if it's, it did happen from therapy, though, is there would it be treated any differently at that point, or is it just more recognizing that that was the cause? It wouldn't be treated any differently, but it's recognizing, I think, that it was the cause. So okay. you know, and which is important because then we're more mindful at the upfront setting, like you said, the preventative and the observational. Did they get six cycles? When really we probably should have stopped at three if we would have picked up on it. So I mean, it definitely has implications. So that's why it's very important. Right. Yeah. The other one thing I wanted to mention, when you're looking at defining risk of cardiovascular toxicity, what can you do with that information? I mentioned that you can do, you know, you do do an extra echo, do you do cardiac biomarkers, or these are all the different tests that you can do, but there's other things that you can do. So there is something called primary prevention. If you have someone who's deemed to be at high risk of developing cardiovascular toxicity, you can look at actually putting those individuals on perhaps an ACE inhibitor, inhibitor, ARB, or a beta blocker, one of these things to try and prevent that cardiovascular toxicity. Because those are the same agents we use to repair, right? right. Like after a cardiovascular event, if the we know that the tissue, if it's gone bad, a lot of the blood pressure meds don't work. But what people think of as blood pressure meds, ACE inhibitors, and long-acting beta blockers, we see that they actually help the contractility and mechanical function right. after that event. So you're saying, use them up front because then hopefully that can kind of keep the integrity and not see that decline in those people that have a high risk of declining. Yeah, use them up front and people are at high risk. And they've, they've actually, interestingly, they've done studies of these what I'll call primary prevention strategies in, in women with breast cancer on anthracyclines and trastuzumab. And they, they saw small benefits. However, you know, one could argue these were healthy women, right? And so now they're looking at, can we take that same philosophy and try these primary prevention strategies in women at higher risk. So I think there's a lot of research that's going on, but the current guidelines put out by the ESC clearly say, if you have someone at high risk, then you can consider these strategies to prevent. That is excellent. Right? You wanna prevent it. And so that also is something that we can do. So you've got those patients who've already developed cardiovascular toxicity and how do you manage those? And by and large, it's just the same type of medications as you've already alluded to, that we use in other patients with heart failure and hypertension, and then survivorship. And how do you manage those people? How do you, if they've gotten through their cancer treatment and they've done pretty well, how do you ensure they don't develop problems down the road? So I think of it in those three different areas. And so, you know, all survivors, right? Survivorship comes from the, the moment you're diagnosed with cancer. We've got all those three areas we need to focus on. Risk stratification, right. prevention, treatment, on you know, if things develop when you're getting your therapy and then survivorship. And as things evolve and are learned, I always think about, you know, Carl Sagan at one point said, the study of astronomy is a humbling field or space. And while I found that to be true, I, you know, did philosophy stuff as an undergrad, when I've come into past, a passed up residency, a passed up fellowship, it is only in practice and then doing these kind of things where you're learning about the world is in a similar way like it's a humbling place in the sense, and I leave with this, is we know that trastuzumab attacks her too and we know it causes cardiomyopathy. Do you know, Dr. Dent, how mind blown I was 
when I found out, you know, some point in my training, that when I add another HER2-targeted therapy, pertuzumab, that they were like, oh, but that doesn't like, you know, I was like, what don't, you know, what would it cause heart failure, like doubling or whatever? They're like, actually, it doesn't like, it, it doesn't actually add that big of a risk at all. And I'm like, but it attacks the same receptor that we said is happening because it's on the cardiac tissue. And, oh, it doesn't. The diarrhea gets really bad, though. And, and then it's like, and then that, that example is, again, in, in a very kind of celestial, humbling way, also an illustration of, like, we only know what we know, and we all, also just collectively as a humankind know, don't know what we don't know. And so as these things evolve, just the awareness of the possibility of something is still a clue that can help us take the next step, you know, for, for us, for the people, for children and generations beyond. And it's, that's, that's, I think, for a lot of people that just truly deeply love oncology and the study of oncology, those are the kind of things that just keep you like, we have so much more to do. We have a great more deal to do. And I have to say, even the guidelines that have just come out, there is certainly recommendations based on evidence, but I can tell you many of those recommendations are based on expert opinion. Right. And that's simply because we don't know yet. These are areas where we need to study. And you're right. I mean, you know, we do use HER2 target therapies in combination now. Unfortunately, we don't see more cardiotoxicity when we add these agents, but we only know that by studying it, right? And, right? and I would argue we need to study it, not just reflect on what's been published in the trials, but we need to look at this in the real sure world that's true. Because oh, that's true too. that we treat, and this is where real world data is becoming very important, the people we treat in the clinic do not reflect the patient's in the clinical that trials. Study, the thing because I just those quoted, study patients were generally very well patients and they have to fit strict eligibility criteria. I want to put in a plug for all of my yeah. my, my um, colleagues and, and people out there that, um, because obviously I'm very passionate about cardio-oncology and how it's advancing patient care, but you know if you're passionate about something and you really truly believe in something, how do you move forward and how did I do that without a lot of support? I just reached out to my colleagues, not only locally, but across Canada and then across the US. And then I went globally and, and, and just continued to try and work with people that were invested in this space. And it doesn't take a lot of money to do that. It just takes a lot of effort, Initiative. a lot of passion, a lot of work. But if you have all that, you can really make a big, a big difference, I think, in the lives of our patients. I'm so glad you said that, I'm, I have goosebumps. But it shows like just that literally whether divine, whether deep down, whatever it is, just this tenacious passion you had to get answers and will into existence. And that's very powerful. And you did it at a time where, it's, you know, now we have social media and Internet and, and emails. You can find those people a lot easier than yeah. than presumably and respectfully the way you had to kind of piece these people together, you know, 10, 10 years ago or, or however long that made you start this journey. But that was very powerful. I appreciate you saying that. Well, this was okay. amazing. Where can people find you if they want to learn more? Do you have education content? I know I think as friends, we're going to talk about how we can kind of boost it up and continue, you know, your initiatives with organizations just to get education out there however we can but how can they find you personally if anywhere and i know you're located at duke but i'm sure people would want to see and hear more from you and sure and i would encourage you you can go to the international cardio oncology society website okay i'm on that it's ico-os.org and certainly find me that way and i'm happy to talk to anyone who wants to have a conversation or has a question about you know an individual or even you know i get i get emails from actually people who've gone through cancer therapy asking me um, a question about their cardiovascular health. So happy to do that as well. 
And I'm sure some people will just want to help get help starting it in their facility. Like like if I get I know one or two cardiologists and maybe one oncologist that would be passionate if we just had this tumor board or basically this kind of like tried to have an organized, you know, case list of, of things that we can explore and probably I'll just be texting you and be like, hey, well, you know, what do you think of this? But but if we can establish and start those things, that's how, if nothing else, the awareness comes. Wait, there's a tumor board for cardiology about these drugs? Yeah, there is like, actually. And we have them. We have actually, you know, I should say that the International Cardiology Society or ICOS has actually, people are welcome to join that society. As I said, we have over 800 members now. And on that in that, amongst that society, we have weekly tumor boards and weekly talks um, yeah, this should happen all places. over the world. Yeah. And we talk about these things and it's absolutely amazing, the educational opportunities. And of course, if you're interested in the space um, within this organization, we have working groups, nursing working groups, pharmacy working groups, we have all sorts of opportunities for education and opportunities. This should at the very least be a journal club and every like, pharmacy like training program fellowship yeah. there should be a journal club for that month where it's just cardio -onc. yeah and i'm sure your name will be everywhere <laughs> all right dr dent this is amazing i appreciate you okay um, thank you